This is U.S. Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today, I have Eduardo Arango, who is a software engineer at Scilabs, but also is finishing up his PhD and is very passionate about open source software. I met Eduardo when I was one of the early developers for a container technology called Singularity, and I think he joined around mid-2016. So Eduardo, welcome to the podcast, and first things first, I heard from the grapevine that you recently got braces. <laughs> yeah, I recently got braces. Just this weekend, past weekend, I got the third update on the wires. So it is hurting a lot. So it's now in my third month today. Okay, so everyone listening should know that Eduardo is being very brave and strong right now as he's answering all of these questions. <laughs> okay, so let's jump right in. Being both a PhD student and a software engineer for Scilabs, that is a heck of a lot of things to take on. Maybe you can tell us your story, what led you to pursue a PhD in the first place, and then discover open source, and how you transitioned in these last years into having this dual role. Yeah, for sure. I think my history is a very research engineer history. My background is environmental engineer, so I was studying environmental engineering but somehow I got pulled into research and I started doing microbiology research. And that microbiology research took me to some software programming. But then the professor looked at me programming and he says, oh, you know what? We should also tie those microbiological research with environmental data. And then I met Fortran. <laughs> and Fortran made me meet Linux. Right, so by that time I was a full Windows person, and turns out no one wanted to teach me Linux in my university, and I ended up knocking the door of the system admin of the university, and one thing led to another, and one year after that I was a system admin assistant, helping other researchers go through the same process I went while learning Fortran for greenhouse gases, and since then I helped and I participated in so many amazing projects like quantum research, bioinformatics, mechanical engineering, everything you can imagine. And by doing that, I started to get used to open source, right? So I was playing with this tool that is fully open that is called HT Condor. It's the resource manager of my university. And one day, four years ago, the system admin leader told me, hey, Eduardo, you should try to run containers with HC Condor and let me know how that goes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> and hear me now, four years from that, I became a Singularity developer and Greg saw me and Greg pulled me to Scilab. So I jumped from my university helping researchers getting their job done to getting new features and helping everyone just with Singularity. So that's kind of my full history. You mentioned how you learned a ton more when you transitioned from using Windows to Linux. And I actually had the exact same experience when I was in my first year of graduate school. Everything I did was with Windows and was with a GUI. And one day, and I remember this so clearly, my computer just crashed, you know, total blue screen of death. 
And my only option at that time was to install Ubuntu, which I didn't know what it was at the time. And it was really challenging at first going from where everything's a graphical interface to totally relying on a command line. And I drastically slowed down for a couple of weeks. But in retrospect, I look back and I realized that this sort of quote, bad thing was extremely helpful for how much I learned in my graduate career. So in your experience, would you say that graduate students or even heck general developers might proactively choose having Linux? I feel that everyone ends up on Linux, at least in universities, because Windows failed to them, right? So it's not a, pro a proactive option, but more of a, they are trying to solve sure. an issue. Something that I've been doing since I learned Linux, I joined the CS school in my university and we started a joint workshop that we run every summer and it's free for everyone in my city. And we only accept scientists and we take them from installing Linux to learning to play with the command line all the way up to doing like OpenMP, CUDA programming and launching a job into a HTC cluster. That is really admirable, Eduardo. You found that resources to learn Linux weren't available to you, and you took responsibility for making sure that they were available to others. Do you think that this sort of training is something that a university should be providing for scientists? Yeah, for sure. Next week is this summer edition of that workshop. And by this year, at least we managed to get the university to pay for the snacks. <laughs> so we are getting there. I really like your approach. You took something that was hugely important for researchers, but the university had little to no awareness for this. And you did whatever it took to get support from the university, even if that just meant starting with the snacks. So I have a follow-up question. How has the balance of your interest between technology development and asking scientific questions how has that changed over time? Well, that's very interesting. Right now at Scilabs, I'm pushing to learn a lot about cloud native technology. But when I look back to the university and maybe start helping people at universities, it's not a knowledge that I can use to help those users. I find myself kind of in between cloud technologies and HPC academia technologies. So I have to read a lot. To this day, I haven't seen a university fully integrating like cloud native technologies for research computing. That's why you have to be ready for academia. But in this job that I am, you also have to be ready for enterprise and commercial institutions. So let's, let's talk more about this relationship between industry and academia. Firstly, how do you see the relationship period? How has it changed and how might it continue to change? It would change. That's something that really makes me happy. I am participating in the cloud native research users group, and that has become really interesting because it's a lot of system admins from universities that they want to take the cloud native technologies into the academia. System admins from academia are really looking into how can they test software before pushing software into the university data center. So it's a topic that I think is the first topic that the cloud native technologies will address in academia. I see CI tools and version control becoming the first thing that academia will fully embrace from enterprise. There's definitely a lot of variance when it comes to labs that might be using version control and some flavor of continuous integration and then others that aren't even aware of those things. 
And you're right that it's not as fully embraced as it should be. What's really interesting that you're sort of hinting at is this life cycle of software. People in academia might see something out in the enterprise space and say, oh, that's really cool. I want to get that working on our cluster. And on the other hand, and we have the perfect project to talk about, there's the case when a project starts rooted in academia and then becomes much more. For example, singularity containers. I was a part of this, so I can, I can definitely tell this story. It was, it was really magical. The open source community grew based in this academic space. And then it did a switch. It, it switched over to enterprise. It switched over to being sort of maintained by a company. And so now as part of that company that's maintaining singularity, it goes without saying that the company has to make profit to survive. And you would imagine that could change the development cycle, the intended user audience. So how has the root user, no pun intended, changed? For example, there's now a focus on a much larger group. And what does that mean for the community and the software? For the community overall, I think they haven't seen a big change in Singularity. I wouldn't say that Singularity has changed in its core. It's just that it has a lot of features around to serve enterprise. So what do you think some of the biggest challenges are with developing an open source software like Singularity that may have different levels of awareness between academia and industry? For example, if a lot of the features that industry needs aren't really relevant for academia, does that suggest that the problems are different or that they might be shared, but academia isn't aware of them yet? One very interesting topic in overall HPC enterprise and academia is the heterogeneous HPC that we are having today. And it's going to be a nightmare next year. Back in four years ago, when I started Singularity, kind of everyone was using either x86 or power systems, right? Today we have x86 power system, R systems, our ARM systems. And next year with this risk five in Europe, people are also trying in Raspberry Pis. We have found a lot of issues by testing Singularity not in an x86 system. It's becoming harder and harder to be compliant for every system out there. Oh, I see what you're saying. The, the challenge of being an open source developer or research software engineer is really compounding because of all the systems that are sprouting up. But to play devil's advocate, I'd say that at least for academia, we can be fairly confident that the space will be limited to a few surefire tested systems. The strategy that we choose almost has to be the conservative one because we have to provide the service without any risk or with very little risk that the investment is going to be out of fashion in a year or so. So let's explore this space a bit. What plugins or features could better empower the user, whether it's someone in industry or academia, to debug or know what's going on? For example, I'm thinking of things like monitoring so I can better collect metrics to request the right allocation of resources for compute or storage. Yeah, that's in the works. We are really struggling for mainly because the Go runtime. The way right now, if we implement uh, plugins as Go is proposing them, it would be really hard for every user to compile plugins. So it's, it's not like we haven't thought of this, but it's that we are trying to work around the way Go handles plugins hooks to be able to offer to the overall community a way to do open plugins. You know, there's a shell in Rust that's called New Shell that is actively under development and it has a really elegant plugin system, I think based on serialization of JSON. 
And it's really cool because a plugin can be a binary script in almost any language that can conform to a specific specification to interact with the new runtime. So maybe something like that might work really well for Singularity that wouldn't require the user to compile it directly alongside Singularity. Cool. Let's not talk too much about containers. Eduardo, I want to focus back on you. One really cool thing that people may not realize is that you don't work in the United States. You are remote, much more remote than even most people think of when they think of the term. And I'd imagine that for the most part, you are okay because your, your company is remote, but you know, there are a lot of conferences in the US and Europe, and you give a lot of talks at said conferences. So what are the challenges with respect to being remote? Well, that's a good question. I would say the first main challenge is that Colombia has like 10 times more holidays than the US. So I'm <laughs> always in a holiday when everyone else is working. But over that, Scilabs gave me something that I was wanting to have for a long, long time is that I adopted Adopt. I love remote working. I was always thinking on having my own dog, and now I, I just have a, my working buddy, as I call him, every day. So I woke up, I walk my dog, and I sit down and work all day, and then walk my dog back again before going to sleep. I really love working remote if you can be a self-managed person. I would say for all the conference, that is being the most challenging part. So my family, my wife, is always not happy when I have to be from conference to conference this year in June and July, I was away something like three weeks, four weeks in two months. So that's been the most challenging part. So I'm always like jumping from academic conferences into enterprise conferences. Are you still a PhD candidate at your university or have you finished up? Well, I just became a candidate three months ago. I'm super happy that my research proposal was accepted. And you can guess it was around doing containers and CI, CD, and DevOps ecosystems for HPC and Academy. I'm targeting to be a full PhD by summer next year. In the last podcast, I interviewed Chris, and he made a nice distinction between science and engineering in terms of technology development as opposed to asking questions. So do you consider your thesis to be more technology development, more asking questions, or some combination of the two? Oh, I would say it's a fully technology development. The question is out there. I don't have to ask questions. I want to use everything that I know from interacting with students and researchers all over the world in these conferences that I go and try to solve the main pain points that I see on them with CI tools and cloud native tools, bring those tools back into academia. It's not like a science PhD. I would say it's more like a technical PhD. There is an issue and I'm trying to fix the issue with tools that already exist. I've noticed, and this is sort of related to the industry versus academia theme that we're touching on, that the responsibility for doing science over the years has shifted. It used to be exclusively an academic thing. If you, you, know, if you wanted to do science, you worked at a university and you published in journals. And slowly over time, institutions and companies are also doing research and further they're collaborating with universities. So my question for you, how do you see this relationship and how do you see it changing specifically with respect to who is taking most ownership over science? Can we do better science if there are entities in the picture that have incentive to make a profit and maybe have more longevity? Yeah, for sure. And I'm a big advocate for that. 
the project that got me to do a PhD here was industry slash government project. So I live in a sugar crop region. So I'm surrounded by tons and tons and tons of sugar crops. And the sugar crop enterprise around my city, they knock at the door of the university and they say, hey, we got some money. You got to research something for me. So my project is half founded by enterprise and half by government. So I do advocate for this kind of project where the industry has a problem. Hey, I want to solve this, but I want this to be solved by the academia. So that is the project that I started in my university. And it was really with enterprise money doing research. So I have to ask, and maybe you've thought about this, and if people haven't started asking you, they probably will start asking you. Let's say it's next year, you just finished defending your thesis, you run outside, you frolic in a field, you run a little circle around a tree and throw flowers in the air, and you're really, really happy you're done. What comes next? <laughs> oh, boy. That's a question that is right now in my head. Um... I don't know. I think I want to move on, right? I think by next year, Silabs will have become a fully enterprise company. I think by that time, I would want to go back maybe to a full HPC ecosystem. I would like to work in systems like Submit at RNL or Laudens uh, Livermore Laboratories, things like that, as a postdoc researcher for a while. I do want to go back and, and give back to the community from academia. That is so lovely to hear. And you know, it's okay to say I, I don't know and not be totally sure about the exact place, but what's really inspiring listening to you talk is that you have some confidence in the direction that you want to go in. And this confidence that you have about what you want to learn and how you want to give back, it speaks very strongly. And gosh, that you want to give back to a community that, that you love, that you feel has given some to you as well, it's, it's very lovely to hear. Yeah, for sure. I still love academia and it's something that will be in my heart forever. I think academia is also really appreciative for how you've already given back. So we're just about coming up on time. Time for some fun questions. Woohoo! <laughs> Eduardo, tell us your favorite things about Colombia. Coffee. <laughs> I always struggle when I travel into these conferences that coffee sucks. I never tasted coffee like in Colombia, something that you would love. Uh, the second thing is avocado for you, Vanessa. <laughs> I live in a very tropical region in Colombia on which I can go to a farmer's market and get whatever fruit or vegetable you can think of, fresh, it tastes much better than any, anywhere else. That's something that I really love from Colombia. I would say I like the weather. I like something that was super hard for me to understand the first time that I was not in Colombia and is not being the Equator line. Here in Colombia, the sun goes out at 6 a.m. and goes down at 6 p.m. Yeah, it's clockwork. And once you're out of Colombia, that doesn't work. Wow, I have the complete opposite life experience. Based on where I grew up and have lived, I couldn't imagine not having long summer days and then much shorter nights. It must be much easier to maintain a regular sleep schedule near the equator. And, oh Lord, the avocados sound amazing. <laughs> 
I used to have an avocado tree in my house. Now that I got married and I'm living other world, <laughs> I don't have, but I still have an avocado tree at my mom's house. As we're closing up, is there anything that we didn't talk about today, about being a research software engineer, about how cool containers are, or making life choices that you'd like to mention? I really want to encourage people to love their research software engineer role. I know that is a career path that is not clear today, but it's becoming more and more important over time. And I do want to encourage everyone to try it out, not even becoming a research software engineer as a career path, but just to try and help. Because once you are here, you got to love helping people. The time that I was in my university as the assistant admin, every day you help a different person. And then watching those researchers publishing papers, fighting cancer, fighting climate change, is very rewarding. That's what I do it. Well, Eduardo, thank you so much for talking to us today. And I hope that the next year goes smoothly and you have the next step that you've always wanted at the end. Thank you.